At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Good morning again, church. How are you doing today? I'll be honest with you, experience tells me about 70% of you just lied right now. Um, we, don't, we don't typically answer honestly to that question in our culture. A lot of times because we go ahead and assume, perhaps because of our own dispositions, I'm similarly guilty that when that question is asked, the person asking doesn't always really want to know how you're doing, do they? They want to acknowledge your presence and, and move along. So how are you doing? What do we do when I'm doing good isn't true about us? What do we do when I'm doing great isn't our reality? And we can maybe hold to some things out there that really are positive and reasons we really ought to be thankful and things that really do anchor us, but what do we say? How do we live? How do you work in community when you're not doing good. I mean, last year, uh, as many of our church family know, uh, Ashton and I lost a baby, one of our twins, during the pregnancy. And something that I realized that I was ill-equipped to handle true grief. We'd processed some hardships or loss in life to that point already, but maybe this was the biggest or most personal moment. And for you, that might have been a diagnosis or the loss of a loved one or a hope that you never got to experience, at least not yet. For us, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, I quickly found that even casual interactions Become, became something I wanted to avoid. I, I didn't want to have to go there with other people. I didn't want to have to process that. I felt like other people didn't want to have to engage on that level. It, grief was something I didn't know how to enter, much less survive. And without a public, frequently used language and culture of grieving... Knowing what to do with pain or loss becomes even more complicated, even harder and worse, doesn't it? Our culture at large, and even our church culture specifically, shares that weakness. Don't we all long for good, happy endings? But then we find ourselves in the middle of devastating todays. With one segment of our society or another facing hardship or disaster or injustice or similar, it doesn't, doesn't it just get easier when you can know about everything that's wrong with the world, or at least how you perceive it, to ignore it, to not respond, to not lean in and grieve? With them. 
How do we deal with death or abuse or poverty or wars or crime or genocide or racism or famine or plague or any other kind of destruction reality that's in our lives? How can we experience good or fruitful mourning? God so obviously must love us. Because in the middle of holding this tension and not really having an answer, we find that that answer is already started for us in his word for us. He's given us examples of how to lament the tragedies that we do and will face. Leading his own people through sorrow after sorrow and using that experience to knit their hearts towards his heart for them. We're walking through a series on an often neglected or forgotten book in the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations. Now, as we've studied this book, we've been given uncomfortable access to the historical moment where Jerusalem in 587 BC had been absolutely destroyed by the Babylonian armies of Nebuchadnezzar. They were invaded, they were carried off into exile, they were killed, they were beaten, they were left in poverty to starve. It was brutal. This loss was so horrific, it left a permanent mark on the psyche of the people of Israel. And through the five chapters of this poem that I believe we could strongly hold that was written by the prophet Jeremiah, we've discovered a powerful and important spiritual discipline that today we're just not familiar enough with. That's the practice of lament. In case you're unfamiliar, this is the first time you've joined us during this series, we've defined lament like this. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads us to trust. It's expressing grief in an honest way to God and then choosing to trust in the middle of that sorrow. Because God is, and He's created us as embodied people who are aware of justice and filled with an emotional response. And we require a means to be able to process that grief and to take that grief to Him. We need to know that we too can and must lament. So we find ourselves in the, in the book of Lamentations chapter 3. And I invite you to turn there with me today. In Lamentations chapter 3, we'll be starting in verse 25 and kind of skipping through the remainder of the middle chapter and this work of literary art. And last week we wondered together at one of the most spectacular statements in the entire Bible, where the author says, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Remember, in the middle of devastation, not sure how the economy will ever get started again, aware of the many people who are suffering or gone, who will never see again, aware that the future for the people who are alive right now is one of wandering and anguish, and loss. In the middle of that moment, Jeremiah writes, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is your faithfulness. So we saw that in the face of our worst hurts, as we remember our God, we can hope. 
Now, admittedly, that may have made sense last week when you watched online or were here with us and you were in the room and you were like, okay, I get it. I can hope. But then you went home and Monday happened, right? Or that relationship strife on Tuesday or that reminder of the worst day of your life on Thursday. And and then after a week of wear and tear or headlines or lived experience, you're, you're back to wondering, how? How do I pray in my pain and end up at trust? My lived experience doesn't seem to work well with that. How do I pray in pain? How can I lament? Maybe you're thinking like, my prayers must just get off at the wrong exit every time because it doesn't have that effect on me. What am I missing? I'm grateful that God, through this passage, provides for us a bit of a how-to experience. He shows all the ingredients that are necessary for a lament to be able to move us towards that trust, towards that hope. And so let's start today in in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25. And it says this, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief... Who will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. After two and a half chapters of demonstrating, right? All of the evil that's happened. All of the hurt. All of the suffering. The poet asserts several ideas. He says that God is good to those who are seeking him, waiting for him. He says that it's worthwhile to be shaped by suffering and pain that leads you to trust even when you're young so that you can have all of a life experience ahead of you shaped by that kind of a trust. He says that in the face of grief and suffering, sorrow isn't our forever experience. He says that God will again show compassion. Affliction isn't what God really wants. What Jeremiah is getting after in all of these assertions is a greater understanding of the purposes and desires that God has for humanity, for his creation. And it's this understanding of of the why behind what God does that can help us to meaningfully mourn. An essential element to lament is to remember the heart of God. Maybe that's the way we say it. To remember the heart of God. We have to stop and realize in the middle of our lived experience the true desires that God has for us. Life and even this historical moment that Jeremiah finds himself in is disorienting. Yes, Filled with disaster. And as children of God, it's natural to wonder, 
Where, where is God? What, what is up with this? Why would he allow this to happen? How can God be both good and powerful and still allow this evil to exist? And in the historical context of this book, the people of Jerusalem had been slaughtered, carried away as prisoners. As a nation, they were experiencing hardship. But in a moment, we'll see there's a couple nuances there. Yes, as a nation... They were able to acknowledge that they were guilty of sin, idolatry. Jeremiah wrote in his book under his name in Jeremiah 2.13, My people, the people of Judah of Israel, have committed two evils. They have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out, dug up cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. He's essentially saying two evils are at work here. One They've despised God. And number two, they've preferred worthless, worthless things. That's the very evil of essence of evil. To assess the infinitely valuable and satisfying God as something you didn't want. And instead choose to dig in the dirt for something that can never satisfy you and decide to put all of your hope on that. And that's something that we as humanity do all the time, is find and search for things that can fulfill us, all the while stiff-arming the one thing that can. As a nation and a people, they had stopped worshiping God. And so this correction would bring them back to him. And understanding God's heart at that level perhaps was simpler. But if you zoom in, you can see individuals That some people undoubtedly bore less blame than the collective did as a whole. That's maybe the way we experience our lives. How do I or how did that person end up with that experience? In Jeremiah's moment, the very youngest people, the unborn children that were murdered, the faithful few, including Jeremiah himself, naturally they're demanding an answer for the pain they're experiencing too. And in searching for that answer, what Jeremiah realizes was that God's preferred intention from creation and his desired heart for their present was for good. That the heart of God that we remember in our pain matters. That God's desire is for good. He says it this way. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He doesn't afflict from his heart. It's not his desire to grieve the children of men. God's desire is for good. So we remember that heart. Even when we experience a life experience that is far different from that. Yes, life does have unbearable tragedies. But for every wrong, we ultimately know the blame is on us. We can draw a line directly or indirectly back to our rebellion. Sometimes, yes, it's a direct line to our own sin, to our own mistakes, to our own choices that have put us in this situation. And this is the fruit of that rebellion against Worshiping and admiring and finding our identity in a God who's rescued us. But sometimes it has nothing to do with us. It's a human condition. 
the wrong side of the Garden of Eden, under a curse. And life proves that to us again and again. And God is just. Sometimes he allows his hatred of sin to play out in our lives. But his defining characteristic isn't anger. God is, Scripture tells us, love. In fact, Scripture tells us he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. That his anger won't last forever. Like we just sang, his mercy triumphs over his judgment. Another theologian says it this way. God gets no pleasure from inflicting pain on people. His judgments aren't the way he wants to relate to humanity, but they are his response to human sin. God's desire is for good. That's what we hold on to and remember. So as we mourn evil, as we mourn loss, as we mourn the presence of injustices and personal tragedies, we call to our hearts and minds that God is for good. He's driven by love out of holiness and justice, ultimately driving us towards joy himself. That heart of God is on display throughout the story of humanity. We see glimpses of it throughout Scripture, but maybe nowhere better than in the story of Joseph, right? Where Joseph, having been rejected by his family, sold into slavery, falsely imprisoned, forgotten, going through what seems like it's a lifetime of tragedy, is able to look back then at the end of his life and say, You meant evil against me, but I remember God's heart. God's heart is for good. God meant it for good. God sent me before you to preserve life. Microcosm that even the worst experiences we can have, we can trust that God is good and working in it for good. And that his heart for us is for joy. His heart for us is for us to worship and cling to him alone. So when my sin or the sin of my community at large or the curse of humanity from Adam onward causes suffering, it's life-giving to know through our gut-wrenching sobs that God's heart is rooted in his steadfast and faithful love. And as we lament, we remember this ingredient that God's heart Towards us is good. And the author continues his prayer. For the sake of time, I'm going to move down to verse 55. Where he continues and he says, sharing another ingredient that we're going to want to hold on to. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. Verse 56. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. And you said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance. And all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, and all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. The poet had written throughout this chapter 
the ink from his quill dry, crying out to God. And he says, God, I cried out to you. Stating in verse 49, he says, my ears will flow without ceasing until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. And then he writes in verse 55 that there was a response. At his very lowest, he cries out to God saying, I called on your name. And this, that, that's an ingredient we need in our lament. That in the middle of our tragedy, we carry our cry to the Lord. As we remember the heart of God to lament, we carry our cry to the Lord. We turn to him. We call on the Lord. We don't wait until we get on the other side. We don't hold on tight and hope, he's saying, we walk to him in the middle of it. Jeremiah speaks as both an individual and also as a personification of the city of Jerusalem itself. He turns to God who has seemed to this point very, very far away. He didn't show up to protect Jerusalem. He allowed them to be destroyed, killed, and carried away. He isn't seemingly providing for their needs for shelter and food and leadership right now. Is he even hearing Jeremiah as he puts this lament together? But Jeremiah turns to him. And now as the lament unfolds, God is recorded as speaking the only divine words recorded in this entire book. And what God says is, do not fear. God was far from ignoring Jeremiah, the city of Jerusalem. God heard. God was not at all distance. He came near. The opposite of abandoning them, he took up their cause. The very farthest thing from being blind to their agony, God had seen. He was beholding the work of evil. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust because as we remember the heart of God in that very moment where we think it's over, we turn to God and carry our cries and our pains and our hurts and our complaints to him. That is pain that is growing into trust. I love that Psalm 77, another lament, reminds us that prayer isn't only for our moments of praise. We seek God, as it says, in the day of my trouble. I seek the Lord. Church, let's be a family that turn to God in every situation, carrying our fears and our sorrows as well as our joys blessings alike. If that seems like a stretch, let's try this out. Sometimes it's helpful to play out the opposite response. So what are we saying if we don't, what are we saying if we don't turn to God? Aren't we indicating that we want to handle it without him? If we don't turn to God, aren't we revealing that in our hearts and in our spirit and our soul, we don't think he's capable or trustworthy of what we're walking through in that moment? That he can't be trusted with this pain? Or perhaps even worse, that we don't think we're worthy of his attention in our pain or in our failure or in our mistake? And neither one of those things are true. To a God who sees us as his 
creation, bearing his image, who he loves with perfect love, desiring that all should know him and worship him and find joy in him. If we keep our pain from God, we're proving that we don't trust him yet. But when we carry our pain to God, we're proving that he is who we trust. Bringing our cries to God is an act of purposeful faith. A choice when we're at our most vulnerable to declare to our own souls, perhaps, that God is the one who we need to depend on right now. And isn't that a natural thing for our hearts to do? If you are a believer here in the family of God, isn't that normal? Because weren't we dead in our sins, in our soul, without the work of God to begin with? So, having trusted God to show up and solve our ultimate problem, shouldn't it now be easier to respond to God and turn to God in in a situation or a problem that is of less significance than our eternity, our standing, our position before him as one of the rebellious ones? If God has shown himself to care about us in that way, can't we trust that he cares about us in the pains of our everyday life experience. Let's carry our cries to God. Maybe joining with your life group if you're in a moment of difficulty that you're not sure you can turn to God in this moment. So that together, even when our hearts falter, our brothers and sisters can mourn with us in ways that grow our faith and our trust in the Lord. Because when we turn to God, knowing for certain He can be trusted, we we get to discover how he'll come through. Jeremiah continued in verse 64. Confident of God's work, he says, You will repay them, Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. You will, your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Jeremiah is speaking against those who are maybe attacking him personally and have been attacking the city of Jerusalem collectively. And he speaks towards justice. He says, God, repay them. Be angry against them. Pursue them. Make sure they are punished for the evil they have committed. And I know that's after your heart, and you will. The other ingredient we ought to add to our conversations of lament is an active patience towards justice. Wait on the Lord to carry out justice. That is the other side, the other part of our laments, our prayers to God that we need to include. As modeled throughout the Psalms of Lament, we pray for God to make it right. And then we choose to trust and to wait for him to carry that out in his way and in his timing. This echoes back to the way we began in verse 26. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Because in the heartache and the perceived delay of God's justice, there is a faith that is very much in motion and at work and active. It's that daily, moment by moment, declaration of our souls that Jesus himself demonstrated for us. God, your will be done, not mine. Your will. I'll wait for you to carry out justice. So are we waiting for the Lord to carry out justice? To correct 
the effects of sin and pain in our world? Are we working for it? Are we championing it? Are we choosing to advance that message of reconciliation towards God? Orienting our hearts towards a kingdom mindset and a compassionate attitude towards those who are feeling the effects of that pain? We need to be praying and living in that direction. And lament allows us to do it. To express our own grief to God while we mourn alongside those who are facing their own sorrows. While we wait for God's plan to unfold. It's a gift to us that as we learn to lament. As we learn to work towards undoing the wrong. As we learn to mourning sorrow. Carrying our cries to God a community often develops around us. We often receive the gift of those who will be our companions in grief. We also receive the opportunity to become companions to those who are grieving. Lament becomes the means to weep with those who weep. Even without resolution, it shows us how to process the pains we experience. It allows us to approach God who we won't ever fully understand. And it allows us to support those who can't find a way forward even when we can't solve their hurt. And lament for Jeremiah and us as well is also connected to a moment in history. It's a moment that solved our greatest problem. Because there was a time where Jesus himself was under the wrath of God. There was a time where Jesus felt as if he was the hunted, the prey, a lamb being led to the slaughter. Even though he knew no sin, in this moment of suffering and abandonment, Jesus turned to the Hebrew Psalm book and quoted a lament from Psalm 22 saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus, faithful to carry out justice, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might be dead to our sin and instead live in righteousness. By his wounds, we experience healing. It's incredible to me that Jesus himself lamented while he was on the cross. And at the same exact time on the cross provided the way that we in our lament can find hope. His work for justice for us on that cross. As we learn to wait on the Lord's justice and we suffer with those who suffer, we get to cling to the very hope, the very method by which God has most ultimately cared for us. God did carry out justice on the cross and he did vindicate his cause through resurrection, but mostly he showed undeserved mercy and kindness to us in a way that we'll never be able to outpace to us, to our children, to his church, to Jeremiah, his promise of faithful love will always endure. So we look to that same God, compassionate and abounding in love. We look to his great and precious promises to us because Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin. Repenting and believing in him alone, we are made just and alive to see and savor and live for a faithful God who we can trust in the middle of our tragedies, in the middle of the tragedies of our world. So church family, let's cling to this. 
Our ultimate hope doesn't come from a good change in our circumstances, a prosperous future for our children. Our ultimate hope isn't anchored in our lives going well. Our only hope and consolation in any pain is finding joy in the heart of a powerful, just, and faithful God who is our peace, who became our life, and who loves us. So we turn to him, lamenting our present burdens and weeping with those who are weeping, remembering the heart of God, carrying our cry to him, and waiting on him to carry out justice. No sorrow or hardship can separate us from a God who's rescued us. Knowing that heart, let's trust him today. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.